This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Really excited for today's show. Uh, I want to talk a little later, I think we'll do this in the second hour, about how people make decisions, how people create opinions. This is so essential to understand. If it clicks, and I hope I do a good enough job explaining it, then from this point forward, it's like it's like you're in the Matrix. You know that scene in the Matrix when, the, when he gets shot and the bullet's coming at him and he like in slow motion leans back. Like You can just wade through the nonsense. If this clicks, you can just sift through it. You're in slow motion, seeing everything come at you. And you can just like, just like, like wage your way through it. It's awesome. Um, but, uh, but it, you got to get this point. Um, have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? The second one, uh, Gandalf is going to the King and he's trying to get the curse out of him and he's got his buddies around him. Gandalf does. And uh, he goes in the castle or whatever, and he sees uh, Theoden right there in the chair, all all cursed. And uh, uh, Gandalf is like walking towards him, and then all these people start attacking him, and he doesn't even lose focus. He's just like lasering right on the guy who's cursed, and all the bad guys are coming at him, and he's just not even just boom, 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 like punching him, kicking him, and all these guys around him are fighting, and he doesn't lose focus ever on uh, why he's there. And, and once this clicks, once you know how people form opinions, you just don't get distracted by nonsense anymore. So we'll do that a, uh, a little later. But first, I got to start here because I couldn't be happier. I found something that I've been looking for for 13 years. Last weekend was the National Prayer Breakfast. And it got may got attention because you remember Donald Trump said we should pray for Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings on The Apprentice, and people mocked um, Trump for this. And then Schwarzenegger came back, and they got a little spat going on or whatever. So I was like, oh, well, that's weird. That like the whole thing's weird. So I'm like, oh, I'll go back and find the context to Trump just coming out of nowhere saying, uh, yeah, let's pray for Donald Trump or for uh, Schwarzenegger and his ratings. So here's what happened, real quick. Mark Burnett uh, introduced Donald Trump to the lectern, 
Mark Burnett is the president of MGM Television. He's the guy behind The Voice and Survivor and Shark Tank and The Apprentice. And he's super Christian, like unashamedly Christian. He and his wife, Roma Downey, produced the Bible miniseries on NBC like a year ago. Big Trump guy. So he emceed the prayer breakfast. And before Trump took the stage, Mark Burnett uh, introduced him as the host of The Apprentice, which they worked on together. So that was that was a setup, right? That was that was the introduction. And then Trump goes to the podium and talks about The Apprentice and made the joke about Schwarzenegger. So that was the background of that. And obviously no one provides that context, but that's not what's important. So I'm, I'm scrolling through the prayer breakfast. I'm like, oh, I wonder what else is going on. And I got to a point where Mark Burnett walks to the lectern and says, man, that, that was an incredible address from Rear Admiral, Barry, uh, Rear, Rear Admiral Barry Black. Well, everyone, that was one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. And I went, yes, that's him. I found him. I've been looking for that guy forever. Let me back it up. My brother graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 2003. And I was uh, 17 at the time. I went to his graduation. And I, I didn't want to be there, right? Uh, <laughs> all I remember, I remember two things. The commencement speaker was Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And for some reason, I remember his speech making me angry. And I don't know why. I don't know if there's anything he said or it was a thousand degrees and it was the graduation just took forever. I, so I just remember not enjoying that part. And the only other thing I remember is a speech I heard like the day before, two days before the main graduation. And it was spectacular. I remember the venue. I remember the stage. I remember everything about it except for his name. And I don't remember anything he said. <laughs> so like what a weird experience. Cause I remember all the details or no, I don't even know. I guess I understand. I, I remember all the surrounding things. I remember how it made me feel. I remember like I said, the stage and the venue and the color and all that. And I remember talking about it after, but I don't remember anything about it. I just remember start to finish. It was a master's class in oratory. And I remember thinking this must've been what it was like with like the ancient Greek orators getting up and just blowing people away. Like when, when giving speeches was the main form of entertainment, like this guy is from a different era and my parents were stunned and the whole place was just so incredibly impressed. And about once a year for the last 13 years, once or twice a year, I think of that speech and I can't for the life of me find out who it was or what it was. And I'm pretty good at Google, but I could never find it. I found him. It was Rear Admiral Barry Black. So I found the speech and, and it was, it's the greatest speech I've ever read. Just like I remembered it being, but now I actually know what it's about. Um, this is the opening story and I'll just, I'll just share this for now. And I'm going to share a lot more as, as the weeks go on. But uh, this is what he said. He said, uh, graduates, I want to talk about, oh, he gave the baccalaureate address. That's what it was. It was the baccalaureate address. He says, I want to talk about living a life that matters. Two construction workers were taking a lunch break. One opened his lunch bag and explained, exclaimed, oh, not bologna sandwiches again. This is the third time this week I've had bologna sandwiches. I hate bologna sandwiches. And his coworker says, well, Bob, why don't you ask your wife to fix you something different? Bob responded, oh, I'm not married. 
I made these sandwiches myself. Members of the class of 2003, the truth of the matter is most of the baloney we find in our lives, we put there ourselves. And one of the challenges of life is to ensure that we have a sufficiently ethical outlook so that we do not sabotage our destiny. I love that story. What if, and I've never thought about it like this before, but what if the difference between those who succeed and those who fail or who never achieve or never reach their potential, what if the difference is the baloney that we put in our lives that we ourselves put there? What if that's it? What if that's the big difference maker? What a game changer. So my New Year's resolution with my wife is to, uh, to read. I almost never read. College ruined reading for me. So as a history major, we had to read a book a week, and it was just like, I was like plowing through books, and it just became a chore. So I haven't read like a book in forever. So smart people read. So my wife and I, every night we're home, 20, 30 minutes, we sit down, we read. And sometimes I don't want to read, and she, she's like, come on, we got to do it. And sometimes she doesn't. I'm like, come on, we got to do it. And it's been awesome. So I'm reading two biographies right now and I'm listening to one on tape and the stories are exactly the same. The details are different. One set in the 1850s, one in the 1920s, one in the 1930s, but the stories are exactly the same. It's poverty that no one today can comprehend. Life situations that I've never heard of to, like, like almost no one in America can fathom it just grinding disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And each of the main characters is the ultimate underdog. And there's, this is what's crazy about it. They're such an underdog that no one even pays attention to them. They're not even a joke. Like it's one thing if they were a joke, because if they were a joke, then they'd be on people's radars. They're not even noticed. And then they succeed beyond everyone's expectations and they become national heroes. I want to tell you a little bit about their bios next, but, but the point is these people all had hurdle after hurdle. You know, you think of people not succeeding and I don't know what vision you have in your brain, but it's, you know, they came from difficult situations and they had you know hurdles to overcome and they couldn't do it because they were too high. Maybe, but I don't know. I'm, I'm reading a lot of stories about people who had some pretty remarkable hurdles that they climbed. What if the bigger factor is the baloney? Because these three people didn't put extra baloney in their way. They just kept going. So, of course, the question is, what's the baloney in your life that you put there? Life's tough enough, right? Do we need to go put an extra baloney in the way? 1-888-900-3393. All right, I'll share one story. Uh about one of these guys next. And then I want to talk, uh, the one political thing I wanted to do today is talk about the Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz uh, debate the other day. There's some important things to talk about that. So we'll do that in this hour as well. one 3393 and Mike Slater show on, um, on Facebook. Join us there on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. This is Mike Slater. Slater presenters. So the biographies I'm reading, uh, first is Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, I think I've mentioned that a few times before. And the second that I started is Charles Lindbergh, first person to fly across the Atlantic. He was the most famous person in the last century. The San Diego airport's named after him. Um, and I don't know anything about him. I know about his son or whatever, but I, how could I not know anything about the most famous person of the last hundred years? Isn't that wild? So real quick about Charles Lindbergh. No one... No one knew him. He was so unknown, no one would make him an airplane. That's how much of a nobody he was. The only company that would make him a plane was a company called Ryan Aeronautical uh, here in San Diego. But he was in St. Louis. So he had to come all the way across the country to find someone who would make him a plane. So similar to the Wright brothers. No one heard of the Wright brothers when humans were trying to fly. All the attention was put on Samuel Pierpont, uh, uh, Pierpont Langley. He was a Harvard professor. He had all the funding. He had all the means. He had all the attention. The New York Times put a reporter just on covering Professor Langley because the, everyone knew that he was going to be the first person to fly, but he was beat by two brothers who owned a bicycle shop in South Carolina. What? And then the book I'm listening on tape is called The Boys on the Boat. Uh, it's the men who uh, won the gold medal in the Nazis' 1936 Olympics in crew. And this is right out of the depression, right? And they're all, so crew is a very Northeastern elite sport, sons of presidents and senators and bankers. But this was about the university of Washington and they're all sons of lumberjacks and fishermen and miners and farmers who have never been to a regatta in their life before they joined the crew team. And they went on to be the best in the world. So all these men, Grant, uh, Lindbergh and this crew team, they all overcame incredible, like obstacles, like, the, the, the one of the guys on the crew team, his father, mother, and, and two brothers younger than him left him when he was 15. They just all left him. They left him alone for, for years. Just you're on your own now. He's 15. What the heck? Like ridiculous obstacles. And no one ever expected them to achieve greatness, let alone the, the, the pinnacle of their fields. But to me, that's the American character. And also these, these men didn't put any extra baloney in their life. Let me share a story about that. So Charles Lindbergh, again, first person to fly across the Atlantic, uh, New York to Paris. First, I had no idea how many people were trying to do this at the time. 
there was a New York hotel owner. His name was Raymond Ortigue. He offered uh, $25,000 to the first person to do it. It's about 400000 in today's dollars. So Lindbergh wasn't the only one trying because people wanted that money. The first attempt in 1926, there was a French flyer. And he was backed by a Russian plane designer. And the guy's name's uh, Funk, the French guy. He got three people together. Three people, so the four people on the plane, it never took off the ground. Exploded at the end of the runway. Two of the four people died. I'll get back to him in a second. The next year, three Americans teamed up on a plane called America. There was a team of two Americans on a plane called Columbia, and then a third team of two Americans on a plane called the American Legion. And then there was a French team of two guys trying to fly from Paris to New York. So let me run through those. First, on the, the team, the America, the plane crashed during a test flight and the pilot was too injured to ever fly again. So that was over. In Colombia, the two pilots kept arguing and one of the guys quit and then they sued each other and then the backers sued them because they needed to you know, get some rich people to pay for all this stuff. So they, everyone's suing everyone, just total meltdown. The American Legion, just before they were trying to, going to finally attempt, their plane crashed and both their pilots were killed. The French guys... They were last seen flying over Ireland. So they left from Paris, flew over Ireland. They were never heard from again. And still today, no trace ever found of their plane. So amidst all of this, Lindbergh, this totally unknown guy, gave it an attempt. And no one even even heard of him. Now, here's why he was completely different. A couple of reasons. First, he was the only person to try it alone. Every every other group was was a team. So this avoided any hassles like the Columbia team had, right? Like bickering and all this. He was also the only person to try it in a single engine plane. Every other team had two or three engines in their plane, a much bigger plane. He was also the only person willing to take off when the weather wasn't perfect. He said, what kind of man would live where there's no danger? I don't believe in taking foolish chances, but nothing can be accomplished by not taking a chance at all. But here's the life lesson, and here's where it applies to the the baloney that we put in our lives. That first team to try in 1926 I was telling you about, the the pilot was the top pilot in the world, right? The number one pilot in France, the top ace during World War I, and and the most acclaimed pilot above anyone else. So he assembled his team. There was a co-pilot, a navigator, and a radio operator. His plane had three engines, big plane. You want to know what else was in the plane? A bed red leather upholstery so the nice the nicest leather seats there were long wave and short wave radio sets all the best technology flotation bags in case of emergency they had a uh, a hot celebration dinner that they were going to eat upon their arrival in paris and then they had a, uh, a a batch of warm croissants that they that they took off with that they could eat in the beginning of their journey and then all the food and everything else. That plane never left the ground. That's the one that crashed at the end of the runway and two of the four died. Lindbergh's plane, by comparison, I I was going to say it was stripped of everything, but it wasn't even stripped of everything. It was built around him with the absolute bare necessities. It had, had the most basic equipment possible. He sat on a wicker chair not a red leather upholstered chair, a wicker chair because it was lighter. He had water and a life raft, no parachute. He ripped the margins off of his maps to save weight. That's, I mean, that's like, like 
Like he had his maps. He ripped the, like the sides off to save what a couple grams. And he only brought five sandwiches for soup for food. And people were like, don't you need more than that? And he said, well, I'm either going to die. So I won't need more or I'll eat when I get there. He carried nothing else with him on his plane. And he did that because he wanted to be as light as possible and to save room for more fuel. And the way they designed the plane around him, he needed to look out uh, through a telescope, right? So they, they built the plane just for this specific task. He actually ended up eating only one of the sandwiches. But isn't that wild? Like, I love that story. It, it doesn't take, hmm, I was going to say it doesn't take much to be successful. But that's not it. Um, let, me, let, me, let me go flip it around. Maybe the only way to be successful is to have as little as necessary. Maybe that's the only way. To focus on what's necessary and only what's necessary. No extras, no pomp and circumstance, no champagne uh, for, for your arrival. Not the nicest leather seats, but, a, but an old wicker chair. He didn't bring a change of clothes for when he got to Paris. The ambassador, the American ambassador to, to France had to get a local tailor to make him clothes and he let Lindbergh wear his pajamas to sleep in when he, went, when he finally got to go to sleep. Man, strip your life down is what I'm getting at. We are too weighed down by stuff, stuff we think we need. Take a Google of, uh, just Google Spirit of St. Louis. That was the name of his plane. And you can see the inside of Lindbergh's plane. It's a total joke. A total joke. I was at my buddy's house the other day. His uh, five-year-old has a, a motorized Hot Wheels car, you know, that is way more technology than Charles Lindbergh's plane. If you got too much stuff in your life, you're never going to take off. So my goal is to be more like Charles Lindbergh. Get rid of that excess weight. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later. It's later uh, I got some more stories I want to share a little later, but let's do a little politics. The Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz debate. Uh, was it Tuesday, Wednesday? I thought it was, um, well, let me tell you, I, I hope they do more of these. I hope they do a lot more. I think it's a good thing. I, I love, I, they were talking about healthcare. I, I love Bernie's opening. Bernie's opening is basically without Obamacare, everyone be dead. You'd all be dead. We're, we're all dead. We'd all have cancer, diabetes, we're all dead. That's And then his solution is, oh, I got to be more like Denmark. Denmark. Denmark's the best. Everyone loves Denmark. And that's a great argument because for whatever reason, people have this utopian vision of Denmark. Has anyone been to Denmark? No, no one's been to Denmark, but we just have this made up vision, this made up dream about this utopian land called Denmark. So, uh, Bernie can, can say, oh, we got people like Denmark. And everyone's like, yeah, we do. A couple things that I want to break down specifically. Um, first, to, to make the argument, as Bernie did, and I'm sure you've heard before, that we are the only industrialized country that doesn't guarantee health care as a right. 
That's not an argument. That's that's not an argument. I'm not even going to debate whether or not it's true. I'm just telling you it's not even an argument. Don't let anyone get away with that. The person who says that, obviously, and this is what we're going to talk about more a little later about how people form opinions, but the person who is saying making that argument obviously thinks that healthcare should be a right. So to them, that argument is a, a deal clincher, right? It's like, I want this, and we're the only country that doesn't. Therefore, we need it, right? But to make that leap, you got to skip over why is it good? So when Bernie or someone says that we're the only country without universal health care, the proper response is so or even good. Let, let, me, let me prove this another way because when, when we talk health care, people think that health care is different than any other commodity when it shouldn't be. We get very emotional about it and we, we kind of like lose our principles. But um, let me make another argument. You know, we are the only, not making this up, this isn't true, but I'm making it up. We are the only industrialized country in the world without poisonous snakes. Okay, when I say that, what do you say? You say, good. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. We don't want poisonous snakes. But if I say, well, hold on, we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have it. Does that mean we should want them? So see, it's, it's, that's not an argument. Just saying that we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have this thing doesn't mean that that thing is good. So when someone says we're the only country without industrialized healthcare or the only industrialized country without universal healthcare, that is not an argument that universal healthcare is good. I hope that makes sense. Don't let anyone get away with that one. Um, oh gosh, we got so much to do. <laughs> Another argument. Ooh, this one, I'm going down a long road here. Um, all right, I'll throw it out. I'll do it quick. I'll do it quick. Another argument Bernie makes is uh, we spend more in America than any other country on healthcare. We spend more in America than anyone else in America than anyone else in the world on healthcare. Now, when you hear that, what's the first thing you think? Healthcare is really expensive here. Healthcare is more expensive here than anywhere else in the world. That's 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 what they're trying to get you to think. When he says we spend more on healthcare in America than anywhere else in the world, they want you to knee jerk think. It's more expensive here than anywhere else in the world. But that's not necessarily true. Now, it is expensive, don't get me wrong, but that could also mean, and it is also true, that we buy more healthcare than anyone else in the rest of the world. Again, let me change the word. Let me change the noun away from healthcare because people get emotional about it. Uh, did you know that in America, we buy more lettuce than any other country in the world? What's your first thought? Your first thought is, oh gosh, we buy a lot of lettuce. I didn't know. Did you know we buy so much lettuce? I didn't know we buy more lettuce than anyone else in the world. Okay, now when I say, did you know we buy more healthcare than anyone else in the world? Why isn't your first thought the same? Why isn't your first thought, wow, we buy more healthcare than anyone else? No, that's not your first thought. Everyone's first thought is, oh, it's so expensive. Why? Does that make sense? It is very expensive, don't get me wrong, but again, to say we, we buy more than anyone else, or excuse me, it's, uh, we spend more money on healthcare than anyone else in the world, that is an, uh, a disingenuous argument because they want you to believe something that's not necessarily true. Okay, I could keep going down that road, but that's the short version. I want to play this moment here. 
Uh, this is an important moment. We'll go 1351. Look, Ted, and, and you're right. This is a good discussion. All right. And here is the issue. Ted, let me ask you a question. Sure. Is every American entitled, and I underlined that word, to health care as a right of being an American? Yes I, or no? You know, I'm glad you asked that. You know, right is a word you use a lot. Let's yep. talk about what rights are. Rights mean you have a right for government not to mess with you, for government not to do things with you. If you look at the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights, free speech means the government can't silence you when you're speaking. Religious liberty means the government can't control who you worship, what your faith is. The Second Amendment means the government can't take away your guns. Those are rights. You know what the Declaration of Independence said? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what is a right? Is access to health care. What is a right is choosing your own doctor. And if you believe health care is a right, why on earth did you help write Obamacare that caused six million people to have their health insurance canceled, that had them uh, lose their doctors, well, and for, have people like LaRonda who can't get health well, insurance, for, can't afford premiums, you're denying her what you say is her right. Well, okay. So that's a good answer. Uh, there's a good and a bad. The reason that's a good answer is because he defined the term. We've talked a lot about how to talk with progressives about things. And the number one advice is to ask them to define their term. What do you mean by that word? Now, Ted, he didn't say that. Right? The question was, is healthcare right? Um, Ted, I'm not going to tell what Ted shouldn't do, but if, if I were in that situation, I'd say, well, what do you mean by a right? Define a right, right? Put, put it on them. Now, Ted just went with it, and he defined right, and correctly so. Right? He says that, that rights that we have in America are endowed to us by our creator. And the government protects them. The government doesn't grant rights. They protect rights. You are endowed with the right to self-defense, to speak, to worship. And the government protects these rights. You are not endowed with health care. That doesn't make any sense. You're not born with health care. Someone has to provide it for you. So no, health care is not a right. Because you don't have a right to force someone else to give you health care. Now, that's the good with Cruz's response. But but Ted Cruz, he's too good at this. He should have known you can't use the word access when you're debating health care with someone on the left who wants universal health care. Certainly not with Bernie Sanders because that's one of their buzzwords and Ted had to know that Bernie was just going to take it and run with it. And here's what he did. We have 1352. You didn't answer question, although I interpret your question to be that LaRonda does not have a right. No, that's not what I well, said. Well, what well, I well, said well, is no, access I heard the Bill of Rights. I got the Bill of Rights. Right. She has access. But she and doesn't have enough money. your doctor Look, is a LaRonda, right. you have access right now. Go out and get a really great health insurance program. Oh, you can't do it because you can't afford it. All right? That's what he's saying. Access to what? You want to buy one of Donald Trump's mansions? You have access to do that as well. Oh, you can't afford $5 million for a house? Sorry. Access doesn't mean a damn thing. What it means is whether people can afford it, can get the health care that they need. And they can't. Sec under yeah. See, see that? So Ted just walked right into that by giving Bernie the word access. He had to have known that that was coming next. But here's, here's the truth of the word access. He, he says, Bernie says right now, 
you don't have access to all the health care you may need. All right, you right now don't have access to all the health care you may need. What, what we've lost in our society, and I don't know if people think this is quaint or roll their eyes at it or whatever, but it is the answer. What he really means is you don't have access to all the health care you may need on your own. On your own, you don't have access to all the health care you may need. There is a gap between what you can access by yourself on your own and a gap and then what you could access with other people's help. And that gap is filled with private charity. This is where hospitals like St. Jude Children's Hospital come in. You never have to pay $2.2 million a day to run St. Jude. This is where health ministries come in. This is where back in the day we had mutual aid societies, benefit societies, the moose, the elks, the eagles. Fred Flintstone was the grand poobah of the loyal order of the water buffalo. That's made up, but it's based off of real mutual aid societies that people joined. And there were dues, and you paid in to be in this group, and then if someone needed something, then the money was going to them, and then one day you would be helped, and that's how that worked. This is what Ben Franklin meant when he said only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Only a virtuous people. Back in the day, virtuous people took care of their neighbors. Virtuous people were taken care of by churches or charities. Again, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. I would argue now that we are less virtuous when it comes to our communities and serving others and and charities and stuff like that. We're less virtuous, less connected. Therefore, no freedom. And this is why you get people like Bernie Sanders and a majority of Americans listening to Bernie and being like, yeah, you know, you're right. We we should force people to provide health care for me. We should force other people to pay for my health care. Yeah, we should force people. Yeah, that's not a free society. That's not. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Today, we're so not virtuous. We expect, we feel we are, in Bernie's words, as he said, he underlined, we feel we are entitled to the government to pay for our health care. That is not a virtuous people. And that's a big problem. And no one's talking about that. So it's never going to get fixed, which means uh, this issue will probably never be fully resolved. one 800 excuse me, one 800 3393. Wow. Big Debbie Downer moment there at the end. Slayer. Um, well, let me, let me, I'll be a little more blunt when I get back about something <laughs> that, that wasn't even blunt enough. Slater radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. to uh, Lana, who is in uh, Colorado, my birthplace. How are you, Lana? I'm fine. Uh, I have a different approach to rights than a lot of other people have. And basically, it is the minute you take something from someone to give to someone else, it is no longer a right. It is a benefit, maybe a valuable benefit, maybe a very admirable benefit, but it is not a right in the sense they meant it in the Declaration of Independence. Rights are things we are born with by the nature of the fact that we are human. Government may protect them. In many cases, they have to be protected from government. But the minute, and and there are contractual rights, of course, when you and party A and party B agree, agree to something, then, then if, you know, you've got a right to demand your end of the agreement. 
But in the in the way they meant it in the declaration, the minute you take from one person to give to, to another, it is no longer a right. Well, that's a home run. And I love how you, you, you phrased this, the way that you, you seeded. It may be good. It may be valuable. It may be important. It may be wonderful. Yes. But that's still not a right. Right. Correct. And nobody has, I have heard, not heard anybody point that out. When you take from one person and give to another, it is no longer a right. Beautiful. Lana in Colorado, home run. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening, Lana. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Well done. Here's the, um, here's the, the test, the right test. Uh, I like how Lana put it very good. As soon as you take from someone else, um, let me word it like this. You can choose one of the two. They're the same thing. It's the test. So, so you're like, oh, do I have a right to this? You're wondering, do I have a right to this? Okay. Does it put an obligation on another person? Does this thing put an obligation on another person? If it does, then it's not a right. Do I have a right to this medicine? It's important, as Lana said. It's important. It's essential. Life or death, perhaps. Do you have a right to it? Well, no, someone else had to make it. Someone else had to invent it. Someone else had to make it. Someone else had to produce it. Someone else had to manufacture it. Someone else had to ship it. Someone else had to sell it. No, it's putting an obligation on those people. So no, I don't have a right to it. Now, you can do that with everything, but but you're saying, well, hold on, Slater, I need it. As Lana said, it's essential. I need it, and I don't have it. Now, people want to build this bridge of, well, I have a right to it, therefore. No. No, it's not. The, that bridge, it needs to be built with charity. That's That's the bridge. That fills the gap. That covers the gap. But again, we're, we don't have that society anymore, which is the, uh, which is the problem. Let me, let me say it another way. Are you entitled to health care? No. Should we help others with their health care issues? Yes. Do you see the distinction? Those are two very different things. Are you entitled to health care from someone else? No. Should I help my neighbor with his health care bills? Yes. Should I help someone at my church with their health care issues? Yes. Now, see, back in the day, people used to be dependent on each other, these groups, churches, whatnot. But now we don't invest our lives in these groups and churches. So we need something else to fill that void, and that's the government. And that's why we've created this concept of I'm entitled to it. And you have the right to force someone to give it to you. That's not how it works in a free society. Well done, Lana. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater for Slater, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy, uh, happy Saturday. Hope you have a good weekend. So I want to, I want to share this New York Times article here. It's entitled, The Fear of Having a Son. And the whole story is about how men are, men, city men, I'll get to this, but city men are scared to have sons. They're scared to have sons. 
What kind of men? Uh, pajama boy men. As C.S. Lewis would say, men without chests. As Reverend James Vance called them in 1899, as we talked about last week, driveling little doodles dressed up in men's clothes, but without a thimbleful of brains in his head or an ounce of manhood in his anatomy. Those kind of men. I'll never forget, right before my son was born, Jack, he's four months now, I went to the uh, a VFW just outside of San Diego, Lakeside, country town. I might as well have been in Texas. And I was talking to some guys at the bar, and I asked for some advice. This was like two days before Jack was born. And the guy next to me said, right away, just like that, raise him to be a man. Do manly things. I said, like what? And we just thought everyone at the bar started listing all the things. Hunting, fishing, four-wheeling, horseback riding, rock climbing, wrestling. Let him climb trees as high as he wants. And purposefully, intentionally, Teach him to be a man. What these men at the VFW were speaking of is the the wussification of America, the feminization of men. And in that culture, it's all the more important to raise a man. This is all a result of the feminist movement. Toxic masculinity, right? Where all the problems of our society are for men. So the solution is to make men more like women. Men are violent, dangerous, bad. Therefore, they must be demasculated because that's what the left thinks people think that masculinity means anger and violence and domestic abuse and misogyny so their solution is to turn men into women as opposed to raising boys to be actual men not brutes right it's weird on one extreme you got the brute angry violent all the rest that's not a man and then on the other extreme you have a wuss (laughs) that's not a man so, but so, so, so the feminist solution to having too many brutes is to turn everyone into a wuss. And I don't just mean physically, I mean physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually weak. Well, that's not, that's not the solution. The solution is to raise proper men. We don't want to take boys and and raise them to be just giant puddles of emotion like because that, that's the thing that's what this guy goes on and talks about about how um well let me read uh, i wanted to, i wanted a girl mainly because i felt it was harder to be a boy in today's society if i have a boy i will embrace the challenge of raising a boy who can learn the power of vulnerability even as male culture tries to make him see it as a weakness but frankly i hope that when i have a second child it'll be another girl right so this is well, I'm talking about, right? So we got the two extremes. We've got the brute culture that teaches boys and men to have no emotions. And then we have the other extreme, which teaches boys and men to be giant puddles of emotion. But you, you can't find the right balance. Like there's no effort to find that balance. You just got to go from one extreme to an equally, although opposite, bad extreme. So let's, let's chat about this. There's nothing wrong with being vulnerable. But there's a big difference between being vulnerable so, and and reveling in your weakness being vulnerable because you think vulnerability is a virtue and what's proper and that is being vulnerable so that you get stronger right that that's the purpose it's okay to be vulnerable so that you get stronger you don't want to be vulnerable for vulnerability's sake what what good is that that's nothing 
oh, I'm sad. Okay. I'm, I like sad. I'm sad. I'm just going to be sad. I'm always sad. I'm always sad. I'm weak. No, 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 no. You need to have the emotion, articulate the emotion, work through the emotion so that you are now stronger. That's the goal. I got a minute here. Let's break this down more. There's five emotions. There's five emotions. That's it. Mad, sad, glad, afraid, and ashamed. Those are the five emotions. Mad, sad, glad, afraid, and ashamed. Each emotion has a high, a medium, and a low. So let's just do angry. That one's easy to understand. So uh, that's mad. Low is annoyed. I'm just a little annoyed. Medium is frustrated. Oh, I'm pretty frustrated. And then high is I'm I'm irate. Freaking out, irate. Right, so you get the high, medium, low of, of that emotion. For uh, glad, you have low is pleased. Like, okay. Medium is cheerful. I'm in a good mood. And then high is ecstatic. I'm ecstatic. I'm over the moon. Right, so you get a high, medium, low of those. Now, of the five emotions, mad, sad, glad, afraid, and ashamed, only one of those are good. Glad. Happy. So we need to teach kids and boys to understand these emotions and understand the bad emotions and know how to express them. All with the goal of being able to work through them. Because when you work through a bad feeling, you add a brick to the foundation of your house that you're building that is your life. I know I'm getting deep here, but hear me out. So it's okay to raise a boy, New York Times author, to understand. It's okay to raise a boy that that can say, Dad, I am sad right now because. Okay, that's being vulnerable. That's good. But you got to learn from that and then get stronger. So the feminist-led vulnerability movement is all about being sad. And staying sad and basking in sadness and shouting from the rooftops about how sad you are because you're so sad all the time and I'm just so sad. And then giving up on life because you're sad. What good is that? No good. Elijah is my favorite person in the Bible. The guy's a baller. Total, total, just incredible. Stands up to Ahab, the king of Israel. Calls him out. Then goes into the wilderness for a while. No food or water, nothing. Birds bring him food in the morning and at night, and he just trusts God. He's patient. Skipping over a few things for the sake of time, but then he uh, he goes to Ahab, the king, and he says, all right, you are worshiping Baal, the devil, right? You're worshiping Baal. I worship the real God. I'll meet you up on top of the mountain. Bring two bulls. Okay? And Elijah says, you set up one bull at your altar, and you call the Baal. You call to your God, Baal, to set fire to it. And then I'll call to my God to set fire to, to my bull. So they go up there and, and the false prophets, the Baal prophets, they, uh, they do their thing. They start calling to Baal. Oh, Baal, please, blah, blah, blah. And all day they're doing their thing. And Elijah, he's so cool. He's just taunting them. I just imagine him leaning up against some rocks being like, hey, shout louder. I mean, he literally says, he goes, shout louder. Maybe Baal's, uh, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's sleeping. I don't know. Shout louder. He, got, he, he can't hear you. Right, so they start, the prophets are freaking out. They start whipping themselves and cutting themselves. They're frantic to get Baal to, to listen to them. And then finally, uh, after a day, they give up. So now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah's turn. And Elijah's like, ooh, uh, <laughs> uh, God, really need you here. So he has the Baal worshippers drench uh, this altar with water. Right? Cover it with water. Fill it up with water so that when it does light into flames, they can't be like, oh, well, there's a trick. No, just cover it with water, douse it in water. So Eliza prays and then <laughs> the entire altar lights up in flames. So Ahab's freaked out. So he and Jezebel, the queen who really runs the show, 
uh, order Elijah to be killed. So Elijah runs for his life, runs for his life back into the woods and eventually falls under a tree. And he says, and this is my point. He says, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. Take my life. I'll stop the story there. First Kings 17, if you want more, but um, Elijah, my favorite person in the Bible, praying to God to kill him. Pretty vulnerable. God, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. Take my life. Pretty vulnerable. Is he a coward? No. <laughs> no way. Standing up to the king like that? Please. As Reverend Vance wrote, he said, this is what hopelessness, do- hopelessness does to its victims. It brings the conquerors of kings to the verge of suicide. It reduces giants to pygmies, midgets. Everyone feels this hopelessness. Shakespeare didn't think he was a good enough poet. Raphael compared himself to Michelangelo and thought he was no good. So my point is, New York Times, guy who doesn't want a son, you say you don't want a boy because culture tells him to have no emotion. And you say you'd rather have a girl because it's easier to teach them how to have emotion. No, no, no. Our society needs men who are vulnerable for the purpose of getting stronger. Because as you see, Elijah did not give up. He kept going. That's who we need to raise boys. Or how we need to raise our boys to become real. And it's so funny, this New York Times guy, his biggest fear is that his son will be too tough. He goes on to say, like, his son will be too tough. He doesn't want his son to be too tough. And my biggest fear is that my son won't be tough enough. Right? <laughs> in, in today's culture, I don't think he'll be strong enough. What a, what a funny situation we have here. We both have the opposite fears. We have the opposite concerns. I don't think my son will have enough of a sense of adventure in today's society. I want to take a break here. I want to talk about that. How do you raise a boy in today's culture to have a sense of adventure, to be, to be fearless, to be strong, to have courage? How do you do that in today's culture of, of luxury and today's culture of be vulnerable? Like where vulnerability is, is a virtue in and of itself. How do you do that? Because it's an uphill battle. It's not just going to happen. And if you have any advice, one 888 one I got a four-month thought. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Doing the best I can. But how do you raise a boy? Because you're better than me. You've done this before. I know there's men and women listening, parents listening, who, have, uh, who, are, who are doing this slash have done this. How do you do it? How do you raise a boy in today's culture to have a sense of adventure? It's essential. It's everything. They're nothing. A boy is nothing if, if he doesn't have a sense of adventure. And then in today's culture, it's, oh, how do you feel? How do you feel? <laughs> Come on. All right, you're going to take a break. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Just one more, uh, one more proof that there's, there's, it's mostly city men. I'm just be honest. It's uh, high income, high income men don't want boys. Um, so here's the proof of this. Today, technology is just starting with in vitro fertilization to be able to choose your gender. So I don't exactly know where we are in this process, but it's enough where they have enough data um, to, to tell you what I'm about to tell you right now. And that is that, and, and also keep in mind the people doing this in vitro is super expensive. And I have to imagine that if you're choosing your gender, that it's even more expensive than just regular in vitro. But of, so it's high income people. So of those people who are choosing their gender, 80% prefer girls. 80%. That's not 60, 40, 80, 20 prefer, prefer girls. Cause they're afraid of toxic masculinity. God, their biggest fear is that the boys are too tough. My biggest fear is that my boy's not going to be tough enough. I'm worried that he's going to be around a bunch of kids at school that are just oh, raised to be uh, pansies. But, but I also want my, my son to have a sense of adventure. How do you do that? Slater radio on Twitter. If you have a, uh, a suggestion as well. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm reading this book about Charles Lindbergh and I'm only, I've only gotten to the point where he made it across the Atlantic. So I still got a ways to go, but, uh, Talking about, uh, I read about him as a kid. Grew up in complete poverty, obviously, out in Minnesota. And he would read all night by his kerosene lantern. And he loved to read about Arctic explorers. And his favorite poet is Robert Service. And he read one poem, and he memorized all these poems. And one of his favorite lines was, This is the law of the Yukon. That only the strong shall thrive. That surely the weak shall perish and only the fit survive. I mean, he was just engrossed in that kind of stuff. There was a magazine, like a men's magazine, Everybody's uh, Magazine in 1917. And there was a serial. So every, every week uh, there was a story called Tam of the Scoots. And it was about a Scottish pilot during World War I. So Charles, he says he loved it because it represented chivalry and daring in my own day, as did King Arthur's knights in the stories he read uh, as a kid as well. But that was way, way back in the day, right? But then you had Tam of the Scoots during World War I. It's like, oh, like this is like now. Like I, I can live that same, you know, King Arthur's knights story adventure today. What? And this is when he started dreaming of, of having his own plane and, and flying. And then he grew up to be one of the greatest adventurers of all time. First to fly across the Atlantic. All started when he was a boy. I just want to make sure my son has that. How do you do that? How do you do that? Especially in our, in our country, our, our, this, this country that's so prosperous. Like we just bask in luxury and it's, it's a detriment too much, too much, way, way, way too much. Things are too fast. Things are too easy to get. It's a problem. So Lindbergh's dad, um, I don't think eccentric even begins it. Um, he was a congressman for a while, but that that didn't that didn't give him any uh, any perks, if you will. So the family was in Minnesota. He was in D.C. He really wasn't. He's separate from his wife, Charles's mom, and they really never talked. So he, he grew up kind of without a dad, but. Um, when his son turned 17, 
Charles's dad wrote him a letter, and Charles was shocked that he even remembered his birthday. And in it, he said, I have one pride, excuse me, I have one thing that I take pride in above all others. And that is that you are able to buck the world alone and independent. I love that quality in a person, and especially in you, because it was hardly forced on you. You gripped it yourself. I just want my son so badly to grip that, that independence and that adventure, that adventuresome spirit. one 888 93 A quick example. I got a minute here. And just one more Lindbergh example. So every kid has uh, done the, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? On every family trip, right? So just a little bit of perspective. Lindbergh was like 15 and he drove with his sister and his mom in a car from Detroit to LA. It took, how long do you think that took? Uh, Detroit to LA. How long? How long would it take today? Like two, three days? Maybe you want to stop by the Grand Canyon, make it four? 40 days. 40 days. That's how long the trip to get there. Here's another one. He rode his motorcycle from Kentucky. And you can imagine what a motorcycle was in 1920, right? He rode his motorcycle from Kentucky to Florida to meet his dad. He only stopped to sleep and repair his motorcycle. Kept getting beat up on the, on the dirt roads, right? He bought quarts of milk along the way. Only on the third day did he get a real meal. He ate a couple eggs. He slept on the ground under a tree on the side of the road whenever he just had to stop. His coat was his blanket. That trip, eight days. Eight days on the motorcycle nonstop. So he finally gets to the train station in Jacksonville, Florida to meet his dad. It turns out his dad thought he was going to take the train. So his dad waited at the train station for five days. And then Charles never came, so he left. So Charles gets, gets to the train station. His dad's not there anymore. So he just hops back on his motorcycle and drives back to Kentucky for another eight days. What in the world? And today it's that. Like we expect to be someplace instantly and, and all, like everything needs to be instant. I mean, that's, I just feel like that's a luxury that um, obviously it's good. Right? I don't want to be, I don't want my kid to ride a motorcycle eight days sleeping on the side of the road. But, but I think we lose a lot um, as well. I mean, look at the protesters about Trump. I mean, they're complaining like, like the world's coming to an end while they're having dance parties outside of his hotels. Like, really? Is your life that horrible now? Let me tell you a story. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Sonic Crusaders, this is uh, a bit of an intro to what I want to talk about in the uh, next hour, which uh, is is uh, super important about how we make our opinions. Let me back it up though first. I'll get to here. Uh, I'll get to there. Uh, Edmonia Lewis. Have you ever heard of her? E D M O N I A. Edmonia Lewis. I've never heard of her. I talked to her biographer the other day. She was a half-black, half-Native American woman sculptress in the mid-1800s. What? And, and 
And she overcame, obviously, everything and ended up studying in Rome and becoming one of the greatest sculptors in history. Like, what? And, huh? So it's wild because I, we shared the story on my local show and we had someone call in, DeAndre. And he called in and said, and I, I don't exactly remember, but all they could pick up on was the oppression that she experienced. The discrimination that she experienced being a black woman uh, in the mid 1800s. And, and he, he didn't, he didn't focus or pay any mind to the overcoming of that oppression and discrimination. He could only focus on the fact that, that, you know, she went to Rome and he's like, well, that's because she couldn't be successful here because we're so racist. He, he couldn't focus or he could only focus on the fact that she never graduated from college because she faced so much discrimination. And like, yes, those things happened. But how about the fact that she was falsely accused of poisoning her roommates, was attacked by a mob, beaten and raped, was arrested for her own safety, put on trial, found innocent, and then went back to the school. So I would say that's a pretty big hurdle. And she overcame it. That's the key part of the story, not the oppression part. It's the overcoming of the oppression. And then going to Rome, yeah, I mean, she went to Rome, but not just because it was horrible here. It was because Rome is where you go if you want to reach the pinnacle of sculpting. I mean, that's, I mean, she was fearless. She wanted to, to be the best. I mean, she, she wouldn't let anything get in her way as opposed to people who only see oppression and then oddly only uh, or want to use that as an excuse in their own lives today, which is fascinating. So I asked the the biographer three characteristics of Edmonia Lewis, and, and she said, fearless, tenacious, and ambitious. And DeAndre called in and, I don't know, could only focus on the the victim, anger, angry, and weak or something. I, I, it, was, it was weird. Like, how funny would it be if I had this biographer on, biographer on and I said, oh, so what are three characteristics that, uh, that Ammonia Lewis had that made her so successful? Well, Mike, she was weak, angry, and bitter. <laughs> no, she was fearless, tenacious, and ambitious. So it's just so odd that someone could hear a segment talking about Ammonia Lewis and only walk away with, the oppression that she faced. Like, how interesting. Why? Why are people like that? We just project. Right? We project our own life experiences. And everyone sees things differently, which is, which is fascinating as well. I had the honor the other day of, of taking a tour of the San Diego Rescue Mission. Your city may have a rescue mission as well. I always thought it was just like a soup kitchen. But it's way more than that. They have uh, domestic abuse section for women and children to, to go someplace to be safe. They have year-long recovery programs. They have transitional housing for men and women. They have a preschool, which is essential for these kids who otherwise would be homeless and not getting any education. And then they would show up at first grade with no background. They'd be behind. They would never catch up. They'd, these are the kind of kids who would be in high school with a third grade reading level, right? And the, the thing I love about the rescue mission and this is true for the rescue mission in your city as well zero government dollars none because the program has a mandatory church uh, church service twice a day so if they have that they can't take any government money and they don't 
Isn't that awesome? So anyway, we're taking a tour of one of the top floors of the downtown rescue mission. It's like six stories, but it's a little bit up on a hill. It was an old hospital. So get up on the top floor, sixth floor, get off the elevator, look to the right. And at the end of the hallway is this giant window, floor to ceiling window. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to San Diego before, but it's pretty nice here. And this place is, it's right downtown. It's right on the bay where Charles Lindbergh first flew his plane, as we've been talking about Lindbergh all day. And it's stunning. It's a stunning view, a million dollar view. So I walk to the window and I wonder, you know, what, what are the women on this floor? Oh, this was the floor for transitional, transitional housing for women. So these are women who probably went through the program. Um, I say probably went through that program. They could have gone through a different program, but they definitely went through some program and now they have a job, but it's not, you know, not enough to just go out on your own. And I think they have to pay 200 bucks a week in order to stay there, but that's good. It teaches them, you know, financial skills and it's a, it's a two year long thing to help people get up on their feet. Right. And I was looking out the window and I said, man, I wonder what the women on this floor see when they look out the window and how's it different than what I see when I look out the window. Think about what these women have been through. Domestic abuse, different addictions. They've probably lived on the street for a while, but made it through a program. They're doing better. They got a job. Right? They're getting up on their feet. I'm excited. So imagine a woman who's experienced all that and is now doing much better. What do they see when they look out the window? And I asked that to some people and, and I got some of their answers, but I remember I talked to the, before I asked the women, I asked, the, the guy who was giving me the tour, and he said, well, it depends where they are in their life. Now, just to, so you can see what's out this window, from this view, you can see cruise ships in the port. It's right next to the airport. You can see airplanes coming in from all around the world. Right across the street is a giant new apartment complex. No doubt the rent's four grand for a 800-square-foot apartment. I'm not even kidding. Beautiful, stunning apartments. Little Italy is just below with super expensive restaurants. The highway, the five is right there. So you see all these nice cars driving by beautiful boats in the Harbor, like stunningly beautiful, boats, million dollar boats. You got the Navy just across the Bay, uh, North Island, Coronado. It's where the seals train. Like you can see all this stuff from this view. It's unbelievable. And I thought, man, what do these women see? So one woman who's early in a recovery, she may see a plane landing and say, man, I'll, I'll never have enough money to ride on an airplane. And another woman who's nearing the end of her recovery may say, I can't wait to travel the world like those people. Which may be something she never thought before. Someone may see one of the, the cruise ships. Sometimes there's two, three cruise ships in port. Someone may see a cruise ship there and get bitter and say, ah, oh, a bunch of rich people. It's not fair. It's not fair. But then another woman could see that cruise ship and say, oh, I can't wait to take my little girl on a cruise one day. Someone may see the giant apartment complex and say, oh, those people just got lucky and they've hate in their heart for them. Why aren't I that lucky? They're lucky, I'm not. And another woman may say, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to make the right decisions in my life from now on and maybe one day. It was just such a powerful moment because it just really ingrained to me that we can all be looking out the exact same window, but see completely different things and interpret them completely differently. And just after learning about it, Monia Lewis, 
and being inspired by what she could overcome. And then someone else listens to the same interview and was discouraged by the oppressive country that America is. Gosh, I, I think it's, it's all the more proof that we need to articulate what is true as much as possible. So as many people as possible can see what is true and what is possible. That needs to be the goal. All right, so in the next, maybe I can do a little bit in the next segment, but definitely at the top of this hour, I want to spend some time and talk about how people form opinions. We need to understand how this works. And once you do, everything will be, everything will move in slow motion. That's the best way I can, I can describe it. So we'll do that coming up. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Uh, so we'll do that. We'll do all that next about how people form opinions, how we all form opinions. Uh, I just got four minutes here, so I want to share a quick story here. Again, I, 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 you're going to hear a lot of this next few weeks. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Charles Lindbergh stories. I just they're uh, they're stunning, but um, there's good lessons here. So this one blew my mind. So Ulysses S. Grant served heroically in the Mexican American War. As I'm reading about what he did in the Mexican-American War, I realize that I know almost nothing about the Mexican-American War. So I look forward to learning more about that uh, after I'm done with this book. But after that, he, he was in the Army, and he got stationed in California. So I, or a couple places, but then ultimately in California. His wife was back in Illinois. So he was away from his wife, who had one son who he just met a couple times. And his second son, he he'd never met at that point. His wife would send him letters, and in one of the letters, it had a, a, a uh, outline of his son's hand, the son that he never met before, and he just got so lonely. And, I mean, it would take we like a month for a letter to to make it from California to Illinois. He became super lonely and depressed, and that's where he started to drink. I don't think he ever had a drink of alcohol before that. So he gets drunk. He gets in an argument with the the superiors in the military above him. And he's either going to be court-martialed or he has to quit. So he quits. Quits the military, moves back to Illinois. A disgrace. Total disgrace. His uh, dad was incredibly embarrassed. His town looked down on him. Because here we have this West Point grad who had to drop out of the military. His father-in-law was wealthy. Ulysses S. Grant had no money. So his father-in-law didn't like him. He begged his father-in-law for money. Didn't give him any. He begged his dad for a job. His dad wouldn't even give him a job in his leather factory, his tannery. He had to beg his mom to get his dad to give him a job. So for seven years, so he failed on a ton of different businesses in California, and he just couldn't get anything to work in Illinois as well. Seven years, he could barely support his family. Civil War breaks out. He wanted to rejoin the military. He didn't think he ever would again, but for different reasons, he thought this was, this was a time he, he, he needed to serve. So he asked all these military people. They wouldn't help him. They wouldn't give him the time of day. He traveled 250 miles. Now, this is, you know, 1860. So that's a long way to the capital. 260 miles to the capital to meet with the governor. Right? He's, he wants to meet with the governor and ask for a position back in the military. So he gets there in Springfield, 
and the Capitol building is packed with people. All these people wanting the same thing. So he could only meet with the governor's assistant. Couldn't get a meeting with the governor himself. So he talks with the governor's assistant, tells him his story. And I can't express enough how heroically he served in the Mexican-American War. He did some incredible things. He was, kid, he was just a kid at that point. The governor's assistant concludes that Grant was, quote, rather short-necked. And his features did not indicate any high grade of intellectuality. <laughs> what? He looked stupid. Short, weak, and looked stupid. That's what the governor's assistant concluded so he's super dejected and before he hops on the train he decides to eat dinner at a local hotel he eats his dinner he's walking out and he's just sort of standing by the front door for a minute in walks the governor who is about to eat at the same hotel grant stops the governor the governor Gives him a position in the military. Three years later, he's the commanding general of the Union Army and then the president of the United States. What? What? Like, and it's amazing. The book I'm reading, it's called American Ulysses, kind of like skips over this thing. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you, you're telling me, okay, what if Grant left town the night before or that or that afternoon as opposed to staying around for dinner what if he ate at a different restaurant what if he had an earlier dinner what if he had a later dinner what if the other guy what if the governor whoever he was meeting wanted to meet at a different place or at a different time or walked in the back door or grant went to the bathroom at that moment like what so he never never would have got back in the military never would have become uh general and then president What's the moral of the story for you? What's the moral of that story? I was talking about it with some friends the other day and um, someone said luck, you know, way it goes. And someone said, no, 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 not luck. Luck, to say something like that is luck, it insults God. It insults his sovereignty. It insults his control. And they said it's perseverance and providence. So on his side, it's perseverance, never giving up, never giving up, never giving up, never giving up. And then, but I think for God, that's the providence. Perseverance and providence. I like that. I put that story on Facebook. You can, you can check it out and share it. And, uh, John wrote true grit leading to divine appointment. And that's pretty good. (laughs) True grit leading to divine appointment. It just blows my mind that if he, and what if, what if he never joined the military again? And then he wasn't, you know, the union didn't have an amazing general lost the war. I mean, truly like the Confederate could have won because of this. Then we'd have two different countries. And then like, what would, what would two have looked like if we had like, what that that counter history there just blows my mind. And it all happened possibly because of a chance encounter at the hotel. (laughs) How can that be? All right. Coming up next. How do we form opinions? We need to know this. And once you know it, it'll be like you're in the matrix. Like everything will be in slow motion for you. It'll be great. Got that next. Spread the word. Listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. One more hour, is that it? How can that be? Um, appreciate you being here. I, I think this is an important segment. I, I hope I can I can do a sufficient job uh, in explaining how this works because if it clicks, uh, I, th- I think you'll start to see things in slow motion. That's sort of the best way I can describe it. It's it's you can sift through nonsense. It's like in the Matrix when he gets shot and the bullets coming at him and he's slow motion like, or or in uh, Lord of the Rings, the second one, the Two Towers. When Gandalf is going to uh, uh, the king who's cursed, Theoden, and uh, he's walking towards the king like that, like Gandalf, his attention is solely focused on the king. And then all the, the enemies come at Gandalf and Gandalf's like, whoosh, 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 and like knocks them all out. And then all the guys around Gandalf uh, just take out all the distractions. But Gandalf never loses his focus on uh, the, the cursed king. And by the way, that's also my favorite line of the movie when Gandalf says, Be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I did not pass through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. (laughs) It's a good line. Anyway, so I want to talk about how people make decisions or how people make opinions. And once you know this, again, I think a lot of things will click. So... We talked a little bit about this back Thanksgiving, about how to have a conversation with your progressive relatives over Thanksgiving. And one of the principles of that discussion was there's a big difference between winning a debate and trying to change someone's mind. Two totally different things. Very easy to win a debate. And and this is kind of inspired by the Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders debate on CNN the other day. And I hope they do a lot more of these with different people. Um, but that one was very good too. But it's very different. Do I want to win this debate? Because if I want to win the debate, then I could just talk louder, more confidently, more numbers, more facts, and crush them with my wit and charm. Right? You can win. But are you going to change anyone's mind? It's a totally different thing. Okay, that's just background. Two principles that I want to talk about in detail and then solutions. First, oh, this is from Jonathan Haidt, by the way. He's a psychologist by trade. Uh, and, and applies this to politics. Uh, so there's, he outlines two principles of moral psychology. The first, intuitive premacy. So this is the idea that all of our judgments, and, and I, I'll i say almost all, but I mean like 99.99%. So I'm just going to say all. <laughs> all of our judgments are based on quick gut, gut feeling, gut feeling, gut emotions, gut responses. This is truly how we make most decisions. It's like that. And we've talked before about studies that are done that literally in a blink of an eye, you make judgments about people. It's just how it works. And the gut feeling is based off of anything from how you're feeling that day to past experiences you've had or whatever. I mean, there's a myriad of things that can cause you to have the gut reaction but the important thing is that the gut reaction is is that's your first initial boom and it's that fast okay 
That's point one. Oh, and I guess the side of that is it's gut reaction as opposed to being encountered with something, stopping, uh, uh, you know, listening, interpreting, uh, using logic, reason. Right? Like, no, 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 no. Gut reaction. Second thing. If you are inclined to agree with something, you ask yourself, can I believe it? If you are inclined to not believe something or not agree with something, then you ask, must I believe it? All right, Slater, what, what do you mean? Um, let me give an education one first, and then I'll give you a healthcare example. Because this one happened on my local show just the other day. We were talking about Betsy DeVos, the new education secretary. A teacher called in, gave me all the teacher, teachers union talking points about why Betsy DeVos is a horrible person. She's unqualified. She wants to bring Christianity into school. She wants to privatize education and she hates the children, blah, 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 blah. Right? Now, he, so I'm just, his name was Carl. So I'm just going to walk through Carl. Carl, first, first, first step, intuitive premise. Carl, uh, is surrounded by teachers, union union teachers, right? He hears the union a lot. He's in that world. That's, that's where he lives, right? Big union teacher guy. So his knee-jerk reaction about Betsy DeVos is bad. Probably hates Trump. Hears the union say she's unqualified. Runs with it. That's it. Done. There's your intuitive premise. There's your knee-jerk gut reaction about Betsy DeVos. She's bad. Now, he was explaining to me why she's bad. And the first, his first thing was she's against kids with special needs. Okay. Now, this comes from the, uh, she was in her hearing. And uh, she was asked about the IDEA Act. The IDEA Act is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And she didn't know what it was offhand. So people who don't like her took that and made the giant leap that she hates kids with special needs or whatever, right? When I guarantee you, if after the hearing you went, hey, Betsy, you know the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act? That's the act that says that kids with disabilities are to be put in the classroom at the highest level that they're capable of to be immersed with kids who don't have special needs. You know, that's what that is, right? She'd say, oh, Oh yeah, like well, of course I agree with that. Why? Why would they even ask me? Like what? Like that, that makes perfect. It was passed in 1990. She probably didn't know what it was because like who? Like, who, who, like it's it's so obvious now. It's not even not even a controversial thing. It's like when Mitt Romney was asked in the presidential debate if he agrees with states taking away birth control, he was like, "What? Like what are you even talking about? Like <laughs> why would you even ask me that?" Um, same thing here. It's like, well, yeah, of course I agree. So she was just caught off guard, but. They take this huge leap, right? Okay, okay. So Carl brought that up. And I said, Carl, do you really believe that she doesn't want kids with special needs to get an education? And then he went on this whole thing about how, yes, she doesn't. I said, no, stop, stop, Carl. You think if you had a conversation with Betsy DeVos, just you at the, at the table, you and Betsy, and you said, Betsy, what do you think about kids with special needs? And you really think she would say what? They should, they don't belong. They blah, blah blah like she, like all these. You really think that? And he kept going with his union stuff. Okay, here's why he did this. 
first gut reaction. I don't like Betsy DeVos. She's bad. Because he's inclined to not support her, the question he asked himself was, must I agree with her? Must I believe her? And all he needed to do was find one piece of evidence, one piece of evidence that said no. And he needed to do that to confirm his previous knee-jerk reaction. So he had the knee-jerk opinion that's set now because it's a, he's, against, he's a knee-jerk against Betsy. Now he says, must I agree with her? Must I support her? And oh, here's one reason why I mustn't. Done. End of story. As opposed to, Carl, can you maybe keep an open mind about Betsy DeVos and on, on this topic? No, he wasn't asking, can I support her? Because he was already inclined to not. So he wasn't asking, can I support her? He was asking, must I support her? And the answer was no. Now, if someone is inclined to like Betsy DeVos, let's say you like Donald Trump and you like Betsy DeVos, then you are going to say, can I support her? And you're going to look for one reason why you can. And that's going to be satisfactory for you. That's how most people, that's how, that's how this works. If you're inclined, because of your knee-jerk reaction to support, you ask, can I support? If you're inclined to not support, then you ask, must I support? Okay, give me another example. Uh, let's do a healthcare one. Obamacare. If you if you want, hmm, how do I start here? If you are inclined to support universal healthcare, let's say you had an experience with medical issues in the past, and you're inclined to like it. When Bernie Sanders says universal healthcare, you're like, yes, that's good. You're quick to accept it. If that, if that was your initial knee-jerk reaction, then in 2008 when Obamacare was proposed and Barack Obama made all of his promises, all you said was, can I believe him? And you found one reason to believe him and then you ran with that and that was it. If you did not like Barack Obama, then you heard all of his promises and you heard the proposal and then all you asked yourself was, must I believe him? And you found one reason why you shouldn't and that was all you needed to not. This is how it works for us. This is how it works for everyone. I'll give you another example. Immigration, Trump's executive order about immigration, visas and refugees. A progressive is inclined to not support it. So they ask themselves, must I support it? Must I believe that there are refugees who want to come to America to cause us harm? And they say, no. Because here's a refugee who came to America who doesn't want to cause us harm. Boom, that's all they need. They've confirmed their initial opinion that this is bad. But someone who is inclined to support Trump's executive order, they ask, can I support it? Can I believe that there's a refugee who wants to cause us harm? And they say, yes, I can believe it because here's an Iraqi refugee in Bowling Green who 2009 came to America from Iraq who then went to go join ISIS. So yes, I can believe what Donald Trump said. It's just, I mean, I think that's probably maybe the clearest example. If you're inclined to like Trump's executive order, then you find one reason why you can't support it. If you're inclined to hate it, then you find one reason why you don't want to support it. And you cling to that. Bernie Sanders at the debate the other day says universal health care. If you like that, then all you say is, can I believe what he said? Can I believe that, uh, that healthcare is terrible here and the only solution is health, uh, socialized medicine or else everyone dies. Yes, I can believe that. And then the guy that you don't like, Ted Cruz speaks and he gives facts. All that person says, must I believe him? Must I believe Ted Cruz when he gives an example of how government uh, run medicine 
in, in England results in 85 day wait for knee surgery replacement. Must I believe him? Well, no, because, well, I, I can't prove that it's true. So it's probably false. Done. I'm out. He's wrong. This is how we think. So real quick, I'll give you the last cliff notes. If you are inclined to believe something, all you look for is, can I believe this? One piece of evidence. If you are inclined to not believe something, then all you ask is, must I believe this? And we look for one piece of evidence that is false, so we don't believe it. And we do this to match our instinct, to match our initial gut reaction on a particular issue. This is why changing hearts and minds is so difficult. Because people ask different questions as you're speaking. I want to take a break here. I'll come back and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how we can use this. All right, now that we know this is how our brains work, what do we do with it? How does it change how we listen and how we think and how we talk? We'll do that next. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network all right so how does what we just talked about change how we should talk to people again if someone is not inclined to agree with you like if you're talking with a progressive and they, they don't want to agree with you that that's that you got to understand people's posture no one wants to disagree with themselves <laughs> they don't want to agree with you if they're not inclined to so just know when you're talking to them that they're only asking themselves why they must not agree with what you're saying. They're looking for reasons. And everything you say, they're looking for reasons why you are wrong. They're not actually listening. They, by definition, we all do this, but they, by definition, have a closed mind. So be patient. I think that's it. I think just lower your expectations. Don't stress about convincing this person in one fell swoop because they don't want to be convinced. They don't, there's no such thing. It's impossible to convince someone in one fell swoop like that. It's almost impossible because they, they're looking for the one littlest tiny thing that proves you're wrong because all they're asking themselves is, must I agree with him? And they want to say no. So you could say a hundred things that are true, but one thing that's maybe possibly not, or even hard to prove. And they're just going to grab onto that one thing to prove you wrong completely. Because that's the that's the posture they have moving forward. Just, just know that and just go with it. I mean, still try and and you know chip away at it, but just know it's not going to happen in one fell swoop. So what I do is, is as I ask, I say, "Do you want to believe what I'm saying?" Now we're having a conversation, and clearly they're getting defensive because they don't want to they don't want to agree with me. They want to agree with themselves. So so I just say, "Do you want to believe what I'm saying?" And they'll say no. If they're honest, they'll say no. And then their closed mind will be exposed and then you just go from there. Second, when you hear people on TV talking over each other, just talking past each other, you can see why now. Each person is only looking to agree with themselves. No one's really listening. They just want to agree with themselves. And that's all most people want. They form an opinion and then they perfect and polish it. That's it. 
excuse me, protect and polish it. They form an opinion and then protect and polish it. They want to agree with their initial opinion. So ask someone, where did you get your initial opinion about this person? Like, where did it come from? And they'll say, well, I don't like Betsy DeVos because, no, 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 that's not what I asked. I I didn't ask why you don't like her. I want to know where it came from. Where did your initial dislike of her come from? How did you form your initial opinion? Because here's what's true about it. This is what's crazy. No one, Betsy DeVos. Okay, how many people heard of Betsy DeVos when she was nominated to Secretary of Education? Like if you're outside of Michigan, no one. No one outside of Michigan's ever heard of Betsy DeVos. Ever, 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 ever. So when she was proposed, half the country liked her, half the country didn't. They didn't know anything about her. I didn't know anything about her. But I was inclined to find reasons why I liked her. Because, you know, support Trump, right? I'm inclined, like, oh, oh, she likes this. Good. But people, so other people are like, oh, I don't like her. Well, how do you, what do you mean? And then they were looking for reasons to not like her. But like, go back to the beginning. Where did you not like her? What, like, wh- where did they come from? And then if you can dig away at that and discover that, or it's not you discovering, it's really them discovering it themselves. Then you can start to uh, have a real conversation about why they feel this way. But find out where it comes from first. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a, a, a story in Greek mythology, which is a weird one, uh, Procrustes. So Procrustes is the son of Poseidon, and he sets up shop in between two towns. And as tired travelers walk by, he promises them the perfect bed to spend the night in. Oh, the absolute perfect bed. It fits you perfectly. So come on in, spend the best night of your life on this bed. And the travelers would take it because they're so tired. And if the bed was too short, if the bed was, excuse me, sorry, if if they were too short, then he would tie them down and stretch them out to fit the exact size of the bed. If they were too tall, then he would cut them down. He'd cut their legs off so that they fit the bed perfectly. Now, I honestly have no idea why he did this. I don't know his motivation. Sounds like something out of a horror movie, but uh, this is why there's a word called procrustean. It is procrustean when you you try to fit something into a pre-designed something else. So you have a thesis, that's the bed, and then you take the evidence and you stretch it to make it fit the bed, or you cut it down to make it fit the bed. That's procrustean. This happens all the time. I'll give you an example of this next. I got to take a break. But I'm also saying this happens in our brains all the time. We have the bed, what we believe, and we either stretch the evidence or cut it down, leave things out in order for our brains to fit that bed perfectly. And that bed is just made that quickly. Betsy DeVos has been nominated Secretary of Education. Don't like her. Whoa, whoa. What do you mean you don't like her? Betsy DeVos has been nominated Secretary of Education. Oh, great pick. What do you mean? That's how quickly we form our opinions. Isn't that wild? I'll give you an example of this Procrustean uh, effort when it comes to global warming. It's a classic example of it. We'll do it next. Any questions? 1-888-900-3393 or Slater Radio on uh, on Twitter. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Slater. Slater Crusaders. I'll give you an example of this uh, Procrustean effort. Again, Procrustes, Greek mythology. I uh, say, hey, weary traveler, sit in my bed. It's the perfect size for you. And then they would sit down. If they were too short, he would stretch them out. And then if they were too tall, he would cut them down to size so that they fit the bed. I don't know why he would do this. <laughs> but, but if there's any Greek mythology experts that know a little more about the story, uh, that'd be nice. I really don't know what the motivation or point of that is. But um, So we get the word procrustean from this. So this is when you have a thesis, an opinion, and then you manipulate the data or or your perspective on things or the facts you and you you stretch let's just say the data to fit the thesis or you cut it down you ignore things in order to fit your thesis or original opinion that is procrustean so global warming is the perfect example of this so i want to combine uh, procrustean thinking with with the last two segments about our human psychology so the bed is the is the conclusion that the planet is warming. The planet is warming. That is the established fact. The travelers, the weary travelers, the data. So the data is either stretched to fit the theory, the, the, the conclusion, or it's cut down, ignored. Some of it's ignored to fit the, uh, to fit the theory. So Dr. Bates is now a former NOAA scientist, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientist. He's a whistleblower. And he accused the author of a study of lying in a, quote, blatant attempt to intensify the impact of the study just before some big global warming conference. So there's a big global warming conference. And well, here, all right, so back it up again. There are some people saying that there was a pause in the rise of global temperatures. So global temperatures going up for a decade and then for, uh, well, from 1998 to 2012, 14 years, they didn't go up. Temperatures stayed the same. And then, uh, like, well, now, like, what's that? Like, because CO2 went up those 14 years, but temperatures didn't go up. So what are we doing? So that data did not fit the conclusion. So what did the NOAA do? Because there was a big global warming conference coming up and they wanted to come something, they wanted to have something that could be, you know, make a bang. There's, I'm doing this. This is really rudimentary, but this is the basic idea. There's two main types of temperature gathering. You have sea surface temperature, where you have a buoy in the water with a thermometer, or you have ship-based data, which is taken on the surface of a ship. Ship temperatures are always warmer. But the problem is, so so what you do is you take one or the other. Okay, so so that's not true. You take the water-based the sea surface temperature whenever possible. If you don't have a buoy, then you take ship-based data. That's like the backup data. But you always take the sea surface temperature. That's always going to be more accurate. The problem is the NOAA, or this whistleblower, is is saying that they took good data from the buoys and replaced it with bad data from the ships, which was warmer. Warmer. So the sea surface temperatures showed a colder temperature and that didn't fit their conclusion. So they, they got rid of it and only took the ship-based temperature, which was warmer. And they did that so that they could get to the conclusion they wanted, which was there is no slowing of the temperature. Temperatures always go up and they've always gone up and there was no pause. Right? They wanted to make that conclusion. So they manipulated the data to get there. That's Procrustean. 
And not only that, but they never archived any material. They never archived the data. And obviously that's against the NOAA rules and every single standard of science. All right, so see how that's procrustean? Now, let's bring the last half hour into this. Can I believe it versus must I believe it? Remember, if you are inclined to agree with something, you ask, can I believe it? And you find one thing and you run with it. If you are inclined to not agree with something, then you ask, must I believe it? And you find one reason why not. And you run with that. So if you are inclined to, let's say you, let's say you fancy yourself an environmentalist. You love the planet. And you are inclined to believe scientists who say that uh, we are destroying the earth and it's warming and it's catastrophic. All you ask yourself is, can I believe it? Can I believe that that's true? I form my initial judgment. This is what I think. Can I believe that I'm right? And you say, yes, I can. Here's a study that says the earth's warming. Done. You've proven my gut reaction to be true. And that's all you need to be satisfied. No further investigation or research necessary. If you are not inclined to believe in global warming for a number of reasons, all you ask is, must I believe it? You're looking for a reason not to. And here's one nice reason that a scientist has lied and manipulated the data to come to a conclusion that he wanted to come to. So no, you must not believe global warming. You don't have to believe in global warming because look at what the scientist did. Now, I would like to note, uh, neither of these approaches is, is complete or right, right. I'm not saying anyone's good or, or bad. I'm just saying this is how it works. The proper way, and no one does this. I don't do this. I'm not, I'm not doing a holier-than-thou thing. Like, I don't do this. Um, like the example I gave a second ago with Betsy DeVos. When Betsy DeVos came across the wires as she was the nominee, my first thought was, oh, good. Why? And I've never heard of her my whole life. But I just assumed it was a good choice because I liked all other Trump's picks. I thought all, she's the weakest of all of his cabinet picks, but that's not an insult to her because all of his other cabinet picks are phenomenal, right? So I'm just like, oh yeah, Betsy DeVos, great. Like I didn't keep an open mind about it. I wasn't, I didn't come at it as you should with everything, which is forming no initial opinion, no opinion. And then bringing in facts. And as the facts are coming in, you don't even make an opinion. You don't even go one way or the other. You just bring them all in. And then at a certain point, you weigh it and then come to the But That's how you're supposed to do it. But no one does that. I don't do it. So if you do that with global warming, then you, you come to a conclusion that's something like, it's not, yes, global warming, it, oh my gosh, it's horrible, or no such thing. It's, not, it's neither of those. It's something more like, uh, yeah, the Earth's warming in certain places. Uh, it's a natural cycle. Humans have almost nothing to do with it. And even if the earth is warming, it's not that big a deal. Like it's not super catastrophic. Like everyone's making it out to be like that. Like that, that's the more sensible, reasonable measured conclusion, but people don't want to do that because you got to have logic to come to that nuanced stance. Our brains don't like that. Our brains don't like it. Our brains have to agree with our initial judgment, which is, yes, it's real and it's horrible. Or, no, it doesn't exist. It's a lie. It's, it's got to be one of those two. So anything more nuanced, which is like, well, yeah, the temperature's warming, but it's not that big a deal. It's not catastrophic, and it's a natural cycle, and there's really nothing we can do about it. Uh, but we should be good stewards of the planet. Like, like that's not, like, we don't think that way. one 888 I hope that was somewhat uh, helpful. 
if I can go back, here, here's if you're two two tips. As you're talking with someone just of, of a different opinion, just know that they don't want to agree with you. So ask them, do you want to believe what I'm saying? And they'll say no. And then they are they have exposed themselves. They they not for your sake or anyone else's sake, but for their sake, they know now that they don't really want to believe with you. They've said it out loud. And they'll say to themselves, oh, geez, like, it's pretty bad. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm having a debate and I don't even want to listen to this person. So you can just end it right there if you want. But at least they know. They walk away knowing that they don't want to have an open mind. And it's true for you, too. You can ask it about yourself. Do I want to believe what that person's saying? No. We don't. But ask that to the other person. Um, second thing is, ask them where they got their initial judgment from. And they'll say, well, I don't like Betsy DeVos because, or I want universal health care because, or... I think global, the earth is warming because <clears throat> it's like, no, no, I don't want to know why I want to go before that. Where, where did you get this initial opinion? The initial opinion before you read this most recent, this, this is it. before you read the most recent study that proves your previous opinion before that go way back to the very first time you've ever heard about global warming. <clears throat> where did that come from? And why were you inclined to believe it? Because that's the root of it all. And if you can get someone to get back to the beginning, that's the only hope you're going to have of uh, maybe bringing them on a different path. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, loving the responses from uh, two of the stories that we shared today on the show. I put them both on Facebook, one about Ulysses S. Grant, one about Charles Lindbergh. Um, I I, I end both of them with what's the moral to you, because I'm sure there's many morals to the story. Please check that out. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I'd love your responses. All right, I got a few minutes. We'll end with this. The uh, quote I read the other day, Aldous Huxley, he wrote, uh, Brave New World. 1930s, he said, most of one's life, most of your life, is a prolonged effort to prevent yourself from thinking. People intoxicate themselves with work so they won't see how they really are. Most of one's life is a prolonged effort to prevent yourself from thinking. People intoxicate themselves with work so they won't see how they really are. Um, I came across something the other day. We're going to talk a lot more about it next week. It's called the narcotizing. It's called narcotizing dysfunction. So the idea here is that because you and we all today just consume so much information, which is which constantly, just with a barrage of information, nonsense. Just see the Super Bowl commercial. No one paid attention to it. I don't even remember if it was that funny, but uh, it was the GoDaddy commercial. And it was like the guy was living in the internet, whatever that even means. But when he woke up, see if you watch the commercial again, he wakes up and then as soon as he opens his eyes, mail starts f- shooting through his window into his face. 
right? Because that's what we do. Like, how many people listening now? Be honest. First thing you do when you wake up, you roll over, check your phone, check your mail, and see what's going on, like in the news. Check Fox News or uh, Drudge or whatever. Like, right when you wake up. We're just constant barrage. But the problem is our brains confuse knowing about something with actually doing something about it. We, we don't, we don't, we're not good at making a distinction between knowing about something and doing something about it. And we think that because we know about a problem, like our conscience is clear because it's the same as doing something about it, but it's not. <laughs> we, don't, we, we didn't actually do anything, but we feel good about ourselves because we know about it. On my local show last few days, um, because in San Diego as the country's largest Chaldean population, those are Christians in Iraq. And we've been talking about the Christian refugees stuck in Syria. And, and no one knows. No one, no one knows. Like, no one cares. It's, you know, the Obama administration declared this an official genocide. Christians in the Middle East is a genocide going on. And the reason we're not bringing in any Christian refugees from the Middle East is because the Christians can't go to the UN refugee camps because they're full of Muslims who discriminate against the Christians. So the Christians stuck over there. And... You know, I'm learning more about this, and, and I, I have like this brief thought in my mind of like, wow, we should do something about that. And then I go on in my life because my brain confuses doing something about it and being like, oh, that's sad, with, wow, it's the same as doing, as fixing or, or, or helping. It's not. Knowing about it is not the same as doing something about it. But our brains don't make that distinction most of the time. That's called the narcotizing dysfunction. It's because we bring in so much information. By the way, Mercury One does an incredible job with Christian refugees, obviously. Glenn Beck, Glenn Beck has made the distinction between knowing about it and then continued on to actually do something about it. Most people don't do that. So it's weird that this narcotizing dysfunction, you would think if you take a, if you take someone who doesn't know anything and then someone who's constantly informed, you would think the informed person would do more, but it's not true. Sometimes the more informed person does less because they're too busy just consuming all the time. Ryan Holiday, he said, it's a trade-off of deliberate ignorance for the ability to prioritize and see with clarity. It's a swap of generalized outrage for what will hopefully be effective opposition to trends that really matter. There's plenty to do in the world and plenty to be vigilant about. But let's stop pretending that the ticker tape of the news feed is anything other than what it is. It's addiction and manipulation masquerading as social good. And then we wonder why we're sapped of reason and willpower and perspective. What's he talking about? He's talking about unplugging. And, and I know this is a weird thing to say, but I, try for a week. Don't watch cable news. Just don't do it. The Blaze is different. The Blaze doesn't have the constant barrage. It's just like we used to have a 24-hour news cycle. Used to. I mean, the last few years has been a 24-hour news cycle. And now it's like a three-minute news cycle. It's just an outrage, 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 outrage. I was like, oh, my gosh. And we just consume it all. Stop. Stop. Stop watching it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> I beg of you. You're addicted to it. I'm addicted to it. Get off it. Epictetus, Greek philosopher, 2,000 years ago, he said, if you wish to improve your life, your soul, everything about you, if you wish to improve, be content to appear clueless or stupid in extraneous matters. Hey, have you heard the new Lady Gaga song? No. 
<laughs> it's okay to appear clueless or stupid because we have this drive to like to know as much as everyone and be as informed and be up on the latest. And blah, blah. No, don't. Now, obviously, what's extraneous? Uh, I would say 99% of things on cable news. Most of the news stories are not worth tracking or following or obsessing over. Check out. And I guarantee you, if you do that for a while, you'll start to prioritize what's important and you'll actually do more. You'll be more effective in the things that actually matter. Narcotizing dysfunction. Slater Crusaders, it's been awesome. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We'll hang out all week and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.